0: Our, our scripture this morning will be Luke chapter 16 so if you'd like to turn there and while you're turning i'd like to take a moment to say that it's very nice to be back with you again this morning and as has already been mentioned i'm fighting some form of allergies and pollen and my body does not like it at all and um And despite Renata's valid attempts to heal me of all my infirmities, I am still struggling this morning. And so I am going to force out as much as will come out. And I hope that it will not be overly unpleasant for you as we struggle together to hear what it is I'm trying to say. But as I said, we'll be in Luke chapter 16. So, thank you again for having us here with you. And I want to start this morning by asking you a question Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Jeremiah asked this question of God. And I think this question of God, uh, this question that Jeremiah asked of God, echoes in our own hearts at times. Uh, We can hear it. As we look around at the world around us and we sometimes even find it in our own mouths, we would ask this question, why are the wicked prospering? And I'm sure that as we think about that question this morning, why does the way of the wicked prosper, there are specific people that come to your mind. And you think about those people, those people that we would pity because those are the people that that typically will not bow their knee to Christ. And so those people may be friends, they may be family members, they may be business partners or co-workers, but they are those people who break our hearts. And in the eyes of the world, this is a very strange thing, right? Because those that we pity may actually be more wealthy or more prosperous than we are. But we would look on them with very sad hearts because we see things in an eternal sense, in an eternal light now. And so we actually were talking about this last night, uh, about how this morning as you were on your way in, as you drove out of your neighborhood, as you drove through the neighborhoods to get here, there are people out, there are people walking their dogs and enjoying the beautiful day. But they're not gathering together with the church. They're not gathering together with God's people. They're not gathering together to honor God. And we see that differently now, don't we? We recognize that separation, that, that spiritual blindedness that still exists in those people around us. And even though they seem to succeed, these people have great prosperity We know that these things, these successes and these riches, they're bound to this earth. They're temporal and they do not last. And they are distractions, ultimately, that keep those prosperous and successful people from desiring eternal things. And our text today uses an example of a wicked man who finds a way to prosper himself. He finds a way to provide for himself through wicked plans and devices. And so he becomes a lesson for Christ's disciples. But why would Jesus use a story like this? Have you ever asked yourself that question when you've read this parable? Why would Jesus tell this parable where the wicked man is praised and commended? Why would he do that? Well, I'll offer you this question as we go forward. Could it be that the salvation of that wicked servant and those like him, those that we know, could that be a part of the charge that Christ is giving to his disciples? So let's read together Luke 16 1 through 13. (coughs) He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. And I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do. And when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward, because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, and that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what what is another man's, Who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we need much help this morning. Lord, I admit I need much physical help this morning to bring this message to your people. I thank you that they are gathered here together in your name. And we pray that this offering of of praise, of, of worship to you would be pleasing to you. And we thank you that through the sacrifice of Christ it is. We would ask today that Christ would be made more beautiful to us, that your word would teach us how we ought to live, and that you would give us understanding and make clear the things that are unclear. I pray that you would help my voice, that it would be understood, and that this time together for us would be honoring to you and beneficial to our souls. We pray this for the glory of Christ our Savior. Amen. 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 So if you had to describe this parable in one word, what word would you use? Would you use the word shocking? I think this parable is a shock. And I think it's okay for us to think that way. Because Jesus would often teach and correct through parables like this. He would teach in parables that countered the culture. And they drew a great contrast. And they went against the complacent and everyday thinking. The Sermon on the Mount is an example of this. Blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. The poor... Are going to get a whole kingdom yes yes this is truth and we rejoice with this truth because this is God's kingdom and all these things are true and they stand against the lies and the deception that is found in the wisdom of this world those wicked and godless people who are prospering why do we pity them why do they break our hearts because we understand that this world, with all of its riches and goods, is passing away. And if we continue to neglect our duty before God and chase those worldly things, we will remain under the wrath of God, and that to the destruction of our own souls. And so it breaks our hearts to see loved ones, friends, family members, who are not seated here with us this morning, We don't desire to gather together, and hear the word of God, and to sing praises to him. They do not desire the eternal things of God, but instead they're chasing after the things of the world. And God is breaking our hearts for the lost and for the wicked. And in this parable, he's teaching us what to do about it. So Christ teaches us through this parable. So in the previous chapter, in chapter 15, Jesus is teaching in parables. And he's teaching to the tax collectors and to the sinners. And he's teaching them through three parables or one parable that's broken up into three sections. Um, I kind of hold to the idea that it's really one parable. We're talking about those who are lost at home and those who are lost in the field. You have the parable of the lost coins. They're lost in the house, in the home. You have the parable of the lost sheep they're lost out in the field. And then we have the two lost sons. In the parable that's usually referred to as the as the prodigal son, right? But there are two sons in that story, and both of them are lost. One goes out into the field and is lost, and the other is at home and stays by his father, but he's just as lost. And so Jesus finishes that parable in chapter 15. And he turns then to his disciples. And we see that in verse 1. He also said to his disciples. So we change now. We're addressing the disciples. Verse 2. He begins, A master who has a manager handling his affairs is managing his accounts and property, and he hears a bad report. The manager is wasting his goods. He's not managing well. He's falling down on the job. The master calls the manager and he confronts him. You don't have to be a business owner to understand where this where this master is is standing. You don't you don't have to be uh, to to own a, a Fortune 500 company to get a bad report of someone and, and understand the perspective here. Right? Whoa! Um, I thought things were going well. Now all of a sudden they're not going so well. I've heard this bad report. So why don't you bring your report to me, let me evaluate that report. How does this servant react? He kind of admits guilt, doesn't he? He's pretty much admitting guilt here. Verse 3, the manager says to himself, what shall I do? He's already decided what he's not going to do. He's not going to dig, and he's not going to beg. He doesn't offer an explanation for why he's not going to dig. He just says, I can't dig. Maybe that's beneath him. I don't know. But he's not going to dig, and he's not going to beg. So what am I going to do? So he sits down, and he thinks about it, and he reviews all of the assets and all of the options that are available to him. And in verse 4, the light bulb comes on. He's got a resolution. He comes to a what, a how, and a who. And in verse 5, we see him follow through with that plan. Acts, uh, verse 6, he acts shrewdly. And then in verse 7, we see two examples of his plan. Now, I think it's important that we notice that in verse 5, he called every one of his master's debtors to himself. Every one. I think it's safe for us to assume that's more than two, right? And so what we have in verse 7 is, is, a, uh, is a representative sample, right? He gives us two examples of how uh, he's dealing with the debtors of his master. And I think it's reasonable for us to suspect that the two examples he's given us are the, le- are the least and the greatest discount given okay i think that's reasonable for us to assume so first he takes a debtor who owns a hundred measures of oil and he cuts it in half you now owe 50 measures of oil to the second he says how much do you owe i owe a hundred measures of wheat he cuts it to 80 20 so there's the range of discounts that this manager or this this uh this uh steward is giving between 20 and 50 percent to every one of those who owe his master a debt, 20 to 50 percent. We would all stand in line to get things off the clearance rack at 20 to 50 percent, wouldn't we? I mean we, that's, that's a pretty good discount for us, right? So 50 to, to 20 to 50 percent. And then we get to verse eight. And in verse 8, we see the real shock of this parable. The master commends the unjust steward. The, par- the master commends the unjust steward. And so I want to deal with that a little bit. So it's important for us first to remember that Jesus is the one who is telling this parable. right? Jesus is, is, is sharing the story in order to make a point. He is the one who decides who says what and how people react. It's his his story, right? And so he puts those words into the master's mouth. The master commends the unjust steward. Jesus decided that. So Jesus is the one who is calling the steward or manager unjust. Unjust. And this is important because it relieves for us any doubt that we may have about wrongdoing. I'm sure that you've heard some teaching about this parable before, I have as well. Because some teach that what this servant was doing was absolving his own commission. He was, he was due a 50 to 20% commission, and he was just writing off his own commission. Okay? The problem with that is, if he gives up his own, his own commission, that's not unjust. It's shrewd, but it's not unjust. There's nothing wrong with him doing that. So that, that, that doesn't align. The other argument that I've heard is that he's actually giving up, he's writing off the interest on these loans. He's actually writing off the interest on the loans but the Jews weren't allowed to charge each other interest. And so if the master was charging interest and the servant was writing off the interest, the servant would be just and doing what God said to do. So that can't be right. So this guy really has to be immoral. He has to be doing something wrong. And so I think the easiest explanation here is that the guy is stealing from the master. He's stealing 20 to 50% in order to create a better, a better situation for himself. So let's keep going. Verse 8, Jesus begins to explain why he has used this parable. He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. The children of darkness are better at using their assets than the children of light. Did Jesus really say that? Did Jesus really just say that? Did he really say that the wicked rejecters of God who are content with the temporal world, did he really just say that the earthly heathen is better at putting their situations to work for them than his own sanctified, saved children who have been made righteous in Christ? Yes, he did say that. But then he has more to say. Let's go to verse 9. So he's giving this charge to his disciples in verse 9. He says, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. So I've noticed, I've noticed a couple of New American Standard Bibles here. And so if you use an NAS, if you use an NASB or you use an ESV, then you have different words. You have a few different words in verse 9. So I want to deal with those. <clears throat> I do want to deal with those. So I'm getting ahead of myself. My apologies. We'll blame it on the pollen. Verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. So imagine this. Those that you do business with, those that you think about in your workplace or or in your associations throughout your daily life, your family members, those that you do business with will welcome you in to an eternal home. Jesus is giving them this charge. He says... Make friends for yourselves, so that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. So how can that be? How can that be? How will they be there? How can those lost people that we see around us right now, how can they be there welcoming us into an eternal home? Would it be that our witness would win converts to Christ so now let's deal with this, this text the word fail so the word fail here the root of the word actually implies to die or death ceasing to exist and so the NASB and the ESV the, um, the emphasis or the, or the subject of the sentence kind of changes halfway through it says something to the effect of making for yourselves friends by unrighteous mammon. That that when they when they fail, or it fails, right? Depending depending on which version you have, it says something like that. It makes the riches the subject of the sentence, but I'm not sure that that really gets at the root of the matter. I'm not sure that that really explains the rest of the parable very well because the subject if if i'm reading this right is for the followers of christ to make friends those are the subjects right the followers of christ to make friends using this so that when the followers of christ fail or die they would be welcomed in by those friends into this kingdom right which is what this wicked servant was trying to build for himself, right? He was trying to create a place to go. He's trying to create a place uh, for himself, a haven, so that when he loses his position, he has a place to go. And so Jesus is giving this charge in light of eternity. He's giving it in light of heaven. He's giving giving it in light of an eternal hell. And so again, I ask you. I ask myself as I'm going through this: Where are my business partners going? And so I know that we're on the verge of summer, but it made me think about a Christmas carol. It made me think about it. Made me think about uh, Jacob Marley and Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay. So so Jacob Marley comes back from the dead. And he's visiting Ebenezer Scrooge, and he's and he's draped in his chains. He's dressed in this ashen, uh, grave clothes, and he's having this conversation with Ebenezer Scrooge. And and Ebenezer Scrooge is so confused. He he's looking at Marley, and he says, "You were I don't understand how how can you be tortured for eternity? You were always such a." a good man of business. And the response to that, in light of eternity, is an amazing response. Marley shakes his chains, he raises up to his full height, and he yells out, mankind is our business. And I thought, that sounds like Luke 16. Mankind is our business. And so Jesus continues this charge in verses 10 and 11. In 10 and 11 he says, "Who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust is what is least and is in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you who will commit to your trust the true riches?" Who will commit to your trust the true riches? So unrighteous mammon does not equal true riches. He's making that contrast here. So what is mammon? What is unrighteous mammon? Well, we know that it has to do with money. Somehow we just know that. Worldly riches. It's worldly riches, it's our money. But it also includes the making of our money, the processes that we go through. And so we can arrive as a conclusion that mammon is all of our worldly business. All the things that we put forth time and sweat and effort, money, relationships, all of these things that that are here on this earth these are these are this is our mammon. These are the things that make up our earthly mammon. And so in light of that, Jesus asks this probing question in verse twelve And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is not your own? If you haven't been faithful with another man's riches, who will give you your own riches? Now we know that all we have belongs to God. So we are managers of what God has given us. And if we aren't faithful with it, why would he give us more? And so Jesus is teaching us about the Christian life. He's teaching us that unrighteous mammon is rightly handled by us when we shrewdly use our heavenly mammon to manage it it sounds like a mouthful we'll try some different words we are shrewdly managing all of our worldly assets our unrighteous mammon when we employ when we employ them or use them for the building of heavenly treasures which brings us to the point of this parable in verse 13 no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and mammon you cannot serve the God of heaven and the God of this world you can only serve one master and when you serve only one master then you will be single-minded and no longer double-minded and unstable in all your ways. And isn't this our experience? Isn't this our experience in the Christian life? That when we try to have one foot in the boat of worldly riches and one foot on the dock of eternal security, we find them drifting further and further apart. Now, I have heard this parable preached as a clear charge to tithe and i have heard this parable preached as a clear charge to support missions and i've heard this parable preached as solely dealing with money your money my money the earthly currency that we work to earn to make a living to provide for our families and while i do think that the management of our money is included in this parable It does not seem to reach the depths of the truth to stop there. And so we have to ask ourselves this terribly intrusive question. Why did the master commend the unjust steward? Why did the master praise, yes, that is the word, why did the master praise the wicked servant? the answer in verse 8 is because the unjust steward had dealt shrewdly i'm sure that you're familiar with jim elliot he was a missionary and he was ultimately killed by those he was trying to reach with the gospel but he's a very famous quote he said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, the steward in the story had already lost his position. But with the last few fleeting moments that he had, he used the riches and the accounts of the master that were still at his disposal, and he did two things. The first thing that he did was he gave these deep discounts. He gave 800 to 900 gallons of oil. was marked down to 400, 450 gallons of oil. Gallons of oil. You'd like to have that when you fill up your car, right? Gas prices are a little high. 1,000 to 1,200 bushels of wheat marked down to 800, 960 bushels. We'd all take 20% off of a loaf of bread, wouldn't we? Now, in a society where everyone knows everyone else's business and and your society is based on honor, not dishonoring one another, but honoring one another in all things. Being prepared to extend hospitality at a moment's notice. Right? If if strangers are on the street, you're duty bound to invite them into your home and feed them and, and care for them, right? This is an honor society. This this manager has now caused all of his master's debtors to owe him because he's the one who gave the discount, right? They now owe him, and everybody knows that everybody owes him, so he can't be turned away. This is very shrewd. But the second thing that he does, the second thing that he does is so simple that it's easy for us to miss. When this steward gives these discounts, when he strikes this bargain, when he uses all of these assets the way that he does, he makes the master the most loved master in the country. Can you imagine owing $100,000 in debt to the bank and then just having that debt cut in half? You would love that bank. You would tell all your friends to use that bank. You would always use that bank, wouldn't you? Now, because the debts were owed to the master, the master received the credit. This is so shrewd because the steward used all that he could not keep to gain a future security. And Jesus has created this lesson for his disciples. So let's think of it this way. If the manager in this parable is a picture of our Heavenly Father and we are his stewards, are we shrewdly using the things he has given us to make him more desirable to those that we interact with are we shrewd managers for the master the shrewd manager in this story made the master more desirable and more attractive to the people who owed him great debts now we owed a great debt to our master a debt that we could not pay But Jesus took that debt on himself. But all of the others around us, they owe this same debt. They owe this same debt to the master. So how do we shrewdly use our unrighteous mammon to beg them to come to the righteous mammon? How do we work to secure them so that they may one day welcome us into eternity? You know, if this is an accurate understanding of this parable, then we have a problem. We have a problem. Because in our Christian duty, we have all wasted our master's goods, and therefore we have earned his displeasure. And after our services on this earth have been completed, We will give an account and we are warned. And our master is giving us a warning with this parable. We can plan to be shrewd. We do not have to react like the steward in this parable. And so it's important for us to remember, as I say that, it is important for us to remember that our Christian duty is not performed in order to be saved. It is performed because we have been saved. So I don't want to mix those two things in any sort of way. But we are serving our master, and we should be serving him better than the shrewd servant in this parable. We should be using the money that God has given us. We should be tithing. We should be giving to the poor. We should be helping one another and supporting missions and even other churches, which I trust you all are doing. But we're talking about more than that. This servant recognized all of his assets, and he employed them all. When Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve God and mammon, did he only mean money? And if our mind is so shifted to eternal treasures from earthly treasures would money be the only thing that would look different to us? If earthly treasures were not our focus, and eternal heavenly treasures were, would it only change the way that we manage our money? I think not. In fact, if our minds were transformed to consider only our heavenly accounts, every aspect of our lives would change. We would no longer be average people who are striving to be Christians in the world. We would be Christ's disciples. We would be Christ's disciples first. And then we would be in the world and not of the world. Our focus would shift to the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. But what are good works? So picture this with me. Good works are like the ornaments, like a necklace that hangs upon the body of Christ. It's the jewelry that attracts the world. But like jewelry, some delight in its style and others are repulsed by it. But the jewelry of godliness reflects God's beauty and character and not our tastes. And so the reaction to those good works tells us more about who we are and and what standing we have before God. Have our hearts been made new? Do the do the ornaments that hang on the body of Christ to draw others in, are they are they appealing and beautiful to us? Are those good works beautiful to us? Scripture commands us to good works, and here are a few examples. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 58. Be steadfast, abounding in the work of the Lord. This is an encouraging verse to me because the idea is bearing the image of the heavenly man. In the gospel, we're to be steadfast and immovable. And the best part about it is knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. What a, what a sweet promise for us that your labors in the Lord will not be in vain. This reminds me of when I was a little guy and my dad was trying to teach me how to, how to drive nails, okay? And so I would get my hammer and I would grab it right below the head, right? Because hammers are heavy for little guys. And I would try to tink at the nail. And he's like, no, son, you're choking your hammer. You got to grab it you got to grab it down here on the handle. That's really heavy down there on the handle. That's where you have to grab it. Grab it down here on the handle. And then I would just you know, start tinking away. And he's like, okay, swing it. Swing it hard. He's telling me to swing it hard because the labor's not in vain. That nail will go into that wood. And the harder you hit it, the faster it goes. Unless you hit it wrong, and then the faster it's somewhere <laughs> over there. Right? But... But that was, the, that, was, that was the picture that came to my mind, is my dad saying, swing it! Swing it hard! Your labor's not in vain. Don't, don't enter into these good works with timidity. Walk into them with confidence. These are the good works that were created in advance for us to walk in. Colossians 1.10 Paul prays that the disciples will be fruitful in all good works, because being fruitful in every good work will bring about an increase in the knowledge of God. Knowledge by experience. He didn't say, go learn everything you need to know and then go talk to people. This is on-the-job training. Christians get on-the-job training, right? And if you're like me, it's usually the hard way. But it's on-the-job training. We're learning these things as we go. Titus 3, verse, 8 and verse, 5, verse 8 and verse 14 maintain good works so that you will not be unfruitful instead we will be good and profitable to all men being fruitful in maintaining good works and meeting urgent needs meeting urgent needs and so this is just a brief sampling uh, and so the good good works are commanded of us by Scripture. But we need our minds to be changed. We need our thought processes to be aligned with godliness in order to be intentional in our interactions so that we will shrewdly use our earthly assets. We need to be shrewdly and intentionally raising our children. We need to be shrewdly and intentionally using our hobbies and our leisure time. (coughs) We need to be shrewdly and intentionally using all aspects of our work. So we can look at this shrewd manager. We can look at him and see an example of this. Notice that he sat down and he thought about what he was going to do in verse 3. I don't know if that really stands out, but let's look at verse 3. And the steward said within himself, what shall I do? That's, that's a thinking man's question. What am I going to do? And he's reasoning and he's rationing it out. He's got an, a rationalization process going on. I'm not going to dig and I'm not going to beg. What can I do? What other options are available to me? But I get this picture of him just sitting down. Just sitting down and thinking for a minute. And I think that's important to us because we're so busy with so many things that we don't sit down and think about anything. But he comes to a resolution. He comes to an executable plan, and then he followed through. So let's think again to how we started this morning. Those persons who break our hearts, those people around us, how do we best interact with them How do we best meet them with the gospel? What assets has God already given us to meet them where they are? Well, if we consider the shrewdness of this manager. First, he sat down and he thought. And I would equate this to prayer in a lot of ways. It's kind of like sharpening our axe. Abraham Lincoln was credited with saying, If I had three hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend the first two hours sharpening my axe. This is sharpening your axe. We're going to sit down and and we're going to think about things. We're going to to even plan our prayer before we just plow into prayer with God. right? We're going to think about, what is it that I need to come before God with? Quiet ourselves before we come to God. We're going to confess. We're going to confess our own failure and desire to serve the Master. Then we're going to discuss with God the assets and possessions that we have God how can I use these things to your glory then we would ask him for a vision and I'm not asking for some charismatic vision I'm asking for for light to see things that have been hidden from you so far God how can we see these things God how do we go forward what is the plan How can I be intentional in my interactions with all the lost around me? Maybe I need to ask a different question. Excuse me. (coughs) Maybe we need to ask a different question. Maybe we need to ask the question, how do we create interactions? How do we create interactions with those around us so that we can bring gospel, light? And then we pray for resolve because we cannot persevere in our own strength. These are the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. So I do want to deal for just a second about creating interactions. How do we create interactions? And I offer you this: it's not soundproof, but I've used it in my own life. Um, before I change in a telephone booth and put on a tie, right? I, I'm uh, I'm in a manufacturing facility, and within this manufacturing facility, it's very common to have people use the Lord's name in vain. And it and it never happens because things are going good. It only happens when things go bad. And it's usually because they messed it up. And so in this process of sitting down and thinking, how can I be intentional? Because having them just say stuff all the time is really kind of wearing on me in my in my conscience. Because I'm not reacting. I'm not reacting in a way that I feel is honoring to God by just ignoring it. But I also don't feel the freedom to to lean over my pulpit at them and point my finger down their throat. So how, how do I create a different, a different uh, space, a reaction, when that happens? And so I sat down and I came up with a few canned phrases. And I just set those to, my, to memory. So that when someone says it, I can jump to that canned phrase and spit it out. And I think of myself as a relatively likable person. You know, some of you are smiling at me now, and I appreciate that. So this is the type of interaction that I usually have with my coworkers. So when they say something and I spout back with this, it catches them off guard. And the next time, they only do it halfway. And the third time, they don't do it anymore. And then the fourth time, they come and ask me for advice. It's really weird. It's really weird. But God will bless those types of things. And so I would encourage you in those. I'm not going to share with you what they are. But we could talk about it later if you want to. But as I thought about this, and I don't want to give you the impression that I've got this all figured out, because I do not, by any stretch of the imagination. What I really wanted was a good example of, where, where do I have a good example of someone who was so shrewd and took advantage of every earthly situation? They took advantage of every asset. How, who, who can I think of that did that? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was amazing at this. So here are just a few examples of how shrewd the Apostle Paul was. Paul did not take support from some churches And was an example to them. Paul did take support from some churches. And he was a blessing to them. Paul was in prison in chains. And he used that time to write to and establish and encourage the church. He was a great church director, planner. All of that happened while he was in jail. Paul was chained to guards. And so he preached Christ crucified to them. He's in the house of Caesar, chained to guards, and he's proclaiming Christ. That's that's amazing. That's very shrewd. And when he's in jail <clears throat> at midnight in the jail, and he's singing hymns of praise to God, and there was this great earthquake, and the gates were opened. And the jailer thought that all the prisoners had escaped and he was about to do himself a great harm. Paul calls out to him. He says, we're all here. And what happens? The jailer says, oh, good. Locks the doors up and heads off to Burger King. No. He falls down on his knees. And, he's, and he says, what, may I, what must I do to be saved? He and his whole household are saved. That's amazing. Paul's on trial, so he preaches to kings, and he preaches to princes, and he preaches to their wives. Paul's under arrest, and so he appeals to Caesar, having himself transferred to Rome to further the gospel. He was strategic. He was intentional. He was shrewd and all for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is the charge to us, brethren, to be wise To be shrewd, it's the same word. To be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And when Jesus said that in Matthew 17, he said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. I'm sure many of you feel like you are out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I know there are times when I feel that way. But he tells us to be shrewd. He also tells us to be innocent. But we see this in our example of Paul. Why was Paul shrewd? Because he had been changed by the gospel. He was driven by and for the gospel. His mind had been changed. And so I I'll offer you I'll offer you this this very poor example from my own life. The place where I work now, I've been there for almost 22 years. And um, early on in my time there, when I was in manufacturing, I was, I was aware of an, of an internal desire for ministry. And when you're in a company, then there are people that you get to know, and, and people leave, right? People leave, and that becomes the talk, you know? Well, where'd they go? Where are they working now? What's it like over there? I remember one guy who was a machine operator and he left to go sell insurance. And that was a, I was like, how did he do that? Well, his father in law sells insurance and he's going to go do that. You know, there's always some strange conversation around that. And, but I begin to think, what if God were to call me out of this place to be a pastor, to preach the gospel? would my coworkers be shocked Ooh. that's a that's a hard question would they be shocked would they be like who him really that guy i wouldn't want them to be surprised my my character and my interactions with them i want them i want them to say oh yeah i'm surprised he was here as long as he was that's the re- That's the reaction I want them to have. I'm not going to tell you that's the reaction they would have. That's the reaction I would want them to have. But I would offer that to you as well. Think about life like that if you're here and God moved you over here, would everyone around you be be really surprised by that, or would it just seem right and normal and natural? yeah. He's always been a fanatic. Of course he's going off to follow after God now. That's what we want to hear, right? The idea that you cannot serve God and mammon became very real to me at that time. And so the purpose of of all of this is to use all that we have to win others to the truth of Christ. And And so I would put it to you this way. Let's consider that you were to die and and your funeral was here. It was here at the church building. And every acquaintance, every friend, every coworker that you've ever had were to attend this funeral. Pastor Brackett stands up here and he brings this miraculous gospel message. It's fiery. He's on fire. And he speaks of salvation and he speaks of a new life and he speaks of how Christ changes the hearts of individuals and he takes away every sin and he makes us new creations. He, he, he's talking about all of this and he says, and, and this person embodied that. They were the very picture of the salvation that is offered through Christ. Would your co-workers be cut would they be pierced in their heart? Would they say, he, he was, she was a perfect example of all of those things. And I see it. Or would they say, I don't think the pastor knew him. I don't think he knew him. Maybe he just knew him on Sundays. Because on Monday and on Friday, it wasn't really like that. Would your coworkers and your friends, what reaction would they have? So it's time for us to live in light of eternity. It's time for us to use every resource that God has placed in our care to point others to Christ and to make Him more desirable. To show them how their debts can be not cut in half, but completely wiped away completely forgiven what a glorious master we serve abounding in loving kindness he's merciful beyond measure but not all will submit to him not all will submit to this glorious message of the gospel let's look at verse 14 in chapter 16 of Luke verse 14 now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. They derided him. The Pharisees loved money. They loved the mammon of unrighteousness. They were the religious leaders and they mocked Jesus for this parable. They mocked him for this parable. Their hearts were far from God. They were not friends of the gospel. And as I said, not all will believe that Jesus died to save sinners. Not not everyone's going to believe that God has given us a law. Not everyone is going to believe that they're rejecting God every day. Not everyone is going to believe that their heart is deceitfully wicked above all else and they can't understand it. So many are going to fight the idea that they're not innately good. But Jesus is the glorious plan of God our Savior to redeem lost souls. To redeem people like you and me. And not all will believe that they can be saved. And so, maybe you're not a friend of heaven here this morning. Maybe you are storing up treasures that will testify against you. Do you want? your sins to be forgiven do you want to live sinless in the presence of God what is your work is your work storing up every earthly thing so that moth and rust and rot and mildew and age can destroy it because only the things of God will last and apart from the saving power of Christ you're on a sinking boat and you're collecting anchors. All of your works will condemn you. They will speak against you. So place your trust in Christ today. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are Christ's commands in Mark and in Acts. And they are our duties to the only God. So obey Christ today. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus promises not to turn you away. So turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're not worthy of the things that you show us, of the truths that you share with our hearts, of the wonderful thoughts and visions that you would give us of an eternity with you, an eternity where we're no longer at war with our own sin and our own flesh, that our, even our bodies would be resurrected in holiness and righteousness, and perfection. That we would live in your presence and enjoy you unhindered, unhindered, with no distraction. God, we thank you for that glimpse of heaven. We thank you for a glimpse of the Savior this morning as he taught his disciples how to live, and so we ask that you would help us to be disciples of Christ and to live in the way that the Lord taught help us to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness I pray over these folks here today who have heard these things and are thinking even now of how they can interact with co-workers and friends and family I pray that you would help them and that you would meet them that you would give them words and encouragement that you would build up their hearts and their minds for the tasks that you're giving them to do God I pray that you would set our consciences right with you that we would not speak to others against our own conscience but that our conscience when in line with you would would point us to that reaction we are to have to bring glory to the Lord Jesus we thank you that your gospel is for sinners and that the only way to be saved is through the Lord Jesus we thank you that he would take our sin upon himself and that his righteousness would be placed on us so that we would be able to stand in the day of your judgment. The wrath has already been taken in our place. We praise you and we thank you this morning for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your patience on us. Help us to follow after Christ and honor him. In his glory and to his name we pray. Amen.